Yeah, it's just really good to see your faces. I miss you. We miss you, man. Uh, yeah. Which, uh, I, I, I would say I miss more casual times, but I can barely remember them. Yeah. <laughs> I can yeah. barely <laughs> remember what it was like to not have to think about, like, I wonder who he's been around. Yeah. Yeah. You know, before we hang out or, like, I wonder what they've been up to. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you know, you texted me. I, I just tested negative, and I, like, wasn't even thinking about it. And then I was like, that does make me feel better. And yeah. we've been, I think, uh, safe and in a small, very small bubble. So, like, I think... You just try to be responsible, right? Yeah, and, and it was such a great reward for like standing in line, you know, getting the thing in your nose, you know, <laughs> yeah. waiting a couple of minutes, they come back, and you kind of have a feeling like you know that you're negative because of the bubble antics that you've done. Yeah. You know, like your face is pressed up against the plate glass window and you're just like looking out on <laughs> the street and you're like, I wish I could go out. Mm. But yeah, but you're like both of you, you two are like my reward. Yeah. Like going mm. to yeah, get the thing, <laughs> and I'm just like, can you just cram it until it hits the brain? <laughs> <laughs> I've got two people I really want to see today. <laughs> it feels like it, like the way we do it, we do it at this drive-through one upstate to get away from like the city and everything. Yeah. So you're not in contact with anyone. It's just people in hazmat suits coming over. You crack your window that much, and they swab this thing around in there. Like I love it because it gets the tears going. I love that. Yeah. <laughs> So I'm like, oh, yeah, I love this. But it's so weird. It reminds me of like what people describe as alien encounters. Mm. And I'm like, this is all like this. This f fucking uh, ancient future memory is baked in all of us of like these creatures coming towards us and probing us with stuff. And this is just part of it. Yeah, we're the, it. yeah we're the experiments and the aliens are coming by and they're just like, yeah. reminds me of that scene of E.T., Mm. When, the, when they're looking for the, the extraterrestrial and they're all in hazmat suits mm -hmm. and they're approaching, we're like, oh, we're the aliens. Yeah. That, yeah. Is, that is exactly how it feels. Almost to the point, like, why are we consenting to this? Like, we had this idea to go get tested. Why do we keep getting them to put these things up our nose? Yeah. It, it causes a, a little bit of that, like, fear volley to start happening in our life. Like, mm -hmm. I'm not thinking about getting tested, but then, like, we're going to go visit her mom. So Cass starts thinking about getting tested and getting closer to the day we're going to get tested and some just anxiety just comes up to the surface surrounding all of this stuff and why are we doing this what the fuck we're we're giving into our fears and like we've been a mess over all this shit i see all those faces at the clinic you yeah. see people who you know they're blasé just whatever reading something listening to you see other people who are gripping this like an airplane throwing turbulence they're just like mm -hmm. am i you know am i gonna get through this uh and you have a whole ranges of of worry and you know thoughtlessness and and then you just see like the 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 nurses and the doctors and the and the people behind the computers and you can tell that they're just trying to keep things even mm -hmm. right they're just trying to like get things in and get things out and yeah it brings up all of these emotions of of like you said, like fear volley, all of these faces that you've met along the way. Was I careful enough? Should I put my mask over? Mm -hmm. What about that one person I accidentally brushed? I went to the bodega. Yeah. You <laughs> know, this other person came over where they tested. And, you know, and all of this kind of phantom paranoia fear, right, mm -hmm. comes up. And then yeah. you get your, most for the most of us, you get your negative test results. Mm -hmm. And it's like you won the lottery. Yeah. And you won, <laughs> yeah. won Willy Wonka's like chocolate factory ticket, you know, yeah. and you're going like, now I could be a person again, you know, I think, or does this mean anything or did I just contract oh, wait, it on I the way out of here? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think if I really wanted to make like incredible, like really dirty money, 
I would print fake <laughs> vaccine oh, yeah. cards. Like, I'm yeah. sure someone's doing that. Someone's you just like, gotta be doing that. Yeah, right? And then you just show up at like some festival with like your fake vaccine card. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know? <laughs> and people go in. There's already black market vaccines. I know. So, you know, of course, it's the I American not, that's way. That's like black market uh, lip fills. It's like all of a sudden you have like permanently <laughs> like ugh, duck God. lips no matter. Like, yeah. Yeah. I wouldn't I wouldn't do that. No, we it's so funny talking about fear because it just it's something that just keeps coming up through this cycle and how you relate to it and us navigating the different reactions that we have to fear, how we handle stuff or like I like I feel like I can be fearless if I just take some time to make some extra precautions ahead of time and I'm like that allows me but to him like taking extra precautions ahead of time might trigger fear. So it's like trying to be respectful. Yeah, I just of, feel like we're in uncharted territory, so you can't really give weight to any one person's sensitivities right now. You can't let your your sensitivities or other people's become weaponized because it's like we're all adjusting. We're all figuring out what this is. So it's like I get that there's people that are going to be anti-mask. Like mm. I, it's almost like, yeah, I get that. We're adjusting. We're figuring this out. You've been fed some information that make you feel like you don't want to do that. And I've been some fed some information that makes me feel like I do. Yeah, I think we're learning – when you're in a, when you're in a relationship, it's like you know very deeply one side of that person, like the love side or mm. the the you know co artist side, and then with the pandemic, you have to learn that person's fear self. How do they relate to fear? And that's yeah. a whole other person, kind of tucked in like those Russian dolls that you open up. Yeah. yeah. And you're like, oh, this fear person was also inside, like this my whole lover, time. Yeah. The whole time, <laughs> and they have a whole different reaction and triggers to fear than I do. Mm-hmm. Right. And and then part of the the work of a kind of loving, committed relationship is, well, how do I learn how to honor who their fear person is, and try to make sure to get them to a good plateau, and at the same time realize what i need at the same time mm. what my fear person is so it's almost like these like new cells are coming out mm-hmm. and we have to almost like relearn who yeah. is in our lives and i remember when the pandemic first hit i I saw on the street who were the people who reacted very obediently to fear they were the first ones to wear the mask mm-hmm. yeah and then who were the the rebels they were when they felt afraid they rebelled against mm. what was causing them fear so they defiantly walked with naked uh, faces on the street you can just see their mouths were just like emblems of defiant pride like i'm gonna show my nose and mouth yeah and they were the last ones to crack and they began to crack when people were being taken away in the ambulances mm-hmm. and so finally they're like oh i guess i really do need to wear the mask and i was like somewhere in between um and a lot of people were, but there was definitely like different personality types reacting in a kind of almost like reactive mode to the fear. And yeah. and, and there was like, I'm not going to wear the mask ever. I'm going to wear the mask immediately. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So like our fear selves are coming out. And like now it's like you look around and it's like the citizens of New York have, you see a whole different citizenry. Now you see people's fear selves and, yeah. how, the, and, and how their fear selves were just born and they were like kind of like toddlers and they were just like learning oh my god this is who i am in in fear zone mm. and now they've gone into adolescence and like now we're getting into adulthood now we've we've lived with fear long enough that i think we're actually maturing through fear yeah and now just as we're getting into like a place of like oh i know how to live with my fear now we're seeing a little glimmer at the end of the tum- tunnel the vaccine and we're like oh i may actually have to let go of this fear now and yeah. i wonder who's gonna miss it Mm. yeah (laughs) who's gonna miss their fear 
Well, then you can't be fearful about the vaccine. So if there's yeah. no there's no shortage of fears, yeah. <laughs> luckily. Yeah. Yeah. I want to look like a pincushion. I mean, please stick me with all the needles, yeah. man. At this, at this point. point, that's how I am. I yeah, mean, my if, belly button. If there's a grand <laughs> conspiracy, f- fine, whatever. I don't. They got me. You know, if there's a, if they're trying to do something else to us by giving us this vaccine, I just don't want to be paranoid. I don't want to live my life like yeah. that. If I ever expect to work again, I'm sure I'm going to need to pr- prove that I've had one of these vaccines. So, yeah, someone told me a great saying like it's not a conspiracy if it affects the rich too. Yeah, simple <laughs> as that. Man. Yeah, yeah. If they're fighting to get this vaccine, it's interesting. Yeah, yeah. definitely puts me at ease a little bit. But you know, you s- you see stuff happen, and and you just yeah. you wish that there was. Um, there's almost so many of us that there's not room for nuanced dialogue about things. Mm-hmm. You know, there's not room to like hold everyone's hands through everything or there is people holding people's hands through why this is important and it's still not connecting so it's it is um i don't envy us right now <laughs> no and the the waters we're navigating as as uh as a species i guess well yeah it's like we we are relearning empathy mm-hmm. because there's like two types of discourses or languages competing for airspace in at least america right now and that's the language of like uh us versus them and that's politics it's religion it's race it's gender it's every it's us versus them i'm right you're wrong mm. and then there's the um, uh, discourse or the language of empathy where you're like just opening it, your heart opens up like an ear flower and mm. you just like want to listen and it doesn't mean that you think the person's right doesn't mean that you think the person's wrong you just know that the person is a person and so you're yeah. listening Dude. And that's the kind of stuff that brings people from one side to the other, mm-hmm. you know, or at least you listen to their fears. And once you listen to them, not, you don't even have to hammer them with facts. You just say, I understand that you're afraid. And just being heard sometimes is enough for them to say, OK, I just needed someone to acknowledge my mental reality. Right. Yeah. And then they can start to let go. Yeah. You know, beautifully yeah. said what you're talking about is the future. It's what uh it's what we try to drill home anytime we talk about politics and and people that just the new and fun ways that they come up with to keep us divided and paranoid against each other you know and and not bringing that natural sense of empathy i think that we all have available to us it's it's not it, it hasn't been available to us and i feel like there is a uh a just a fucking brazen dehumanization that goes on in this country and under capitalism every fucking day. We were just talking about, like, I woke up with uh, that song that from Barney stuck in my head. I love you, <laughs> you love me. But the reason it was stuck in my head is because I was, uh, I follow this account called um, LA Street Watch, which just keeps an eye on on the homeless people. Yes, and yes, yes. They're they're filming on this on this block and this this old abandoned industrial building takes up this whole block and homeless people are everywhere. And the owners of the building, even though they're not in business, blast that song at 70 decibels day and night to try to keep homeless people out from there. And they, they put spikes on benches and they run sprinklers and they lobby. So giving them, giving homeless people food is made illegal. And so, you know, the, 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 the criminalization of survival is, uh, it's 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 ways that they that they manufacture consent through us dehumanizing each other and we can't fall for that shit so it almost has to start with the homeless like who's got it worst who's who's got it worst here how do we make things better for them because i can't see anyone having a good time until that's taken care of yeah that's why i actually interviewed um 
um, a, a homeless couple. They're over. They're at one of the exits, exit thirty. Mm-hmm. And um, for months, I'd I'd uh, go by, and sometimes I'd give them a dollar. Sometimes, if I even five, if I had a five spot. And one day, I just stopped and I parked the car on the side, and I walked up to them and I said, "You know, what are your names?" You know, and you know they told me their names, and the, but there, there were street names. They weren't like their real names, you know. And but I asked them, "Can I just interview you?" And it, this was a, it was in March. So it was still relatively nice. And I remember interviewing her over the wife over at, at this cafe. So, you know, I got some coffee and had some pastries. And we just sat outside and she told me her story. And that was a great, such a powerful experience for her to tell me the story, why she ran away from home, because her mother had um, taken up with her boyfriend and she felt really invisible and unheard and excluded. Mm-hmm. And so she was so bitter at losing her mother's love to her mother's boyfriend that kind of in a fit of adolescent rage she just ran away but she didn't know what she was running into mm-hmm. and so that kind of really quick knee-jerk reaction led to not only just a couple of nights but then a couple of weeks until finally she got used to being in the street with other homeless kids oh, wow. and so she traveled all up and down the northeast to the south out to the midwest sometimes riding trains Mm. and uh, they would find trains that didn't have a lot of security and hide in them and kind of go on the late night, all night journeys. Like, you know, sometimes you could kind of just see the the, the, the very cold wind whipping in and people were huddling for warmth. And she would tell me just odd things. Like you couldn't ride the trains into New York because after 9-11, the, they had like infrared technology looking at the trains. Mm-hmm. So that when you got into like the really intense cities, the high tech cities, there was too much surveillance technology. But the older cities that were run down that didn't have the money to do new surveillance, you could go through them easy breezy. Mm -hmm. And so she would just tell me her life. And then she got addicted to heroin. And so her and her husband are on heroin and they manage it and they try to get money mostly for food. Mm -hmm. And they're just, they live in a tent in in a abandoned lot, you know, in Brooklyn. And so... You know, and I thanked her so much for that, you know, and I gave her some money. And, and whenever I see them, I, I always, like, you know, try to talk to them. And I wanted to follow up with them, but they're very hard to keep track of because you don't know I, when you're going to see them. Yep, that's what always happens with us. Too. Right? Yeah. And, and I made it a point to try to interview people who are homeless or even people who are, like, mentally disabled mm-hmm. to just try to, like, just sit there. And even if I can't understand what they're saying or where their story is going, just sit there because even just my a calming presence lets them know that someone's talking with them. Mm-hmm. And knowing that now not just her and her husband to me symbolize the hundreds of thousands of other people who thought they had a working class life, yeah. who thought they had a middle class life. And now they've descended onto the streets. They're sleeping in cars. Uh, you know, they're traveling the trains. They're having tent cities outside of the cities. Extreme poverty. Extreme poverty. Yeah. And that to me is... I think the the feeling that we should naturally have is not dehumanization, not objectification, um, but incredible empathy mm-hmm. and also rage that there's so much housing here, so much yeah. space, so much um, clothing in Walmart stores, uh, so much empty office buildings, that there's an incredible amount of people who are housing insecure and yet there's all of this empty, warm, heated space with bathrooms and faucets mm-hmm. and rugs and carpets and windows and chairs and tables and couches, even TVs. 
phones that work. So we have all of this ready-made housing and all these people who need housing. And I think at this point, it's we need to kind of open our, our, our kind of fiery hearts, like open up the yeah, hearts to fire and I say that we need to kind of burn that. away all the hypocrisy, all the illusions, all the economic dogma that we've been told and kind of just burn it all down and just say, you know, what is like right in front of our eyes? People who need and things that are places that are empty that need people. Yep. And just put it together. That's leading with love. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Like love can burn, should burn through all that ideology. Yeah. Burn through it. It makes it obsolete. Yeah. It's just living, it's it's living Jesus's message. It's as simple as that. It's like, cool, a homeless person, let's get them a home. Yeah. A hungry person, let's get them a meal. Uh, A miseducated person, let's get them a proper education. And, uh, you know, uh, those things in this country, uh, unfortunately, we can't have, but we can if we got angry enough. Because I believe we could shift into the types of systems that we talk about all the time on this Mm -hmm. podcast. Mm -hmm. And, like, if you go back into our archive, like, all we do is try to build out the future and how it could work for the most amount of people. But I, I do believe we could get there overnight with just flexing our power. General strike. Shut, shut this fucking economy down. Those words need to be spoken so much more freely. Like, it's, that should just be, like, one of our things. Like, like abolish the police. It's just, like, one of those things. Like, general strike. General strike. Spread the word. Spread the word. Yeah. You'll hear about a date, but just keep your ear to the ground. General strike. General Let's strike, shut this yeah. fucking place down until we house the homeless until we have um, a standard of living that nobody falls under. Yeah. And, and that goes beyond politics. It's just as simple as that. Yeah, to me, it's, when, it's funny when you, when you say that, that especially with like Jesus' message for a Christian nation that oftentimes kind of skirts the most radical points of it, but it has to yeah. be more than a political movement. For it to really have the power to detach our emotions that are very gluey, our emotions are, have have stuck like glue to stories of blame. Mm-hmm. So we blame people, right? Yeah. Like we blame the homeless for being homeless. We blame the poor for being poor. Um, lift yourself by your bootstraps. This is the greatest country on earth. If you're poor, it's your fucking fault, mm-hmm. right? And so there's a lot of emotional glue onto that story. Yeah. But what you need is a spiritual movement that actually is strong enough emotionally to actually kind of rip you away from that story mm-hmm. and reattach you to other people's stories. And that's like when I listened to her story and she was telling me about addiction, she showed me the track marks on her arms, but she, she walked me through every step of her life. And when she did that, like I've really, I, the humanity just clicked. Oh yeah. That's why we make movies. Yeah. It's like the story was more important than any ideology. Oh yeah. And yeah. that to me is where, the spiritual movement yeah. has to come. Like, are you listening to someone? Are you really actually like listening to them? Yeah. You know? Cause if you were, there would be no point where you'd be like, well, that's where you're done fucked up. Yeah. Uh, you, you, you ran away from home. I mean, yeah. what the fuck? Of course you're going to end up. No, like, yeah, yeah. yo, it just shows how fucking precarious people's situations are and how precarious we are emotionally. And, you know, the, the desperation that so many people are plummeting towards in this country breeds extremism, yeah. extreme poverty, extreme religious beliefs, extreme political ideologies. And, you know, it, the funny thing is taking care of each other, cooperating, empathy, those things, they soften people. Yeah. They soften people's beings. They, yeah. they start to make the walls around your heart crumble. Yeah. So, yeah, like because uh, I just recently <laughs> did this article on QAnon, so I had to like do a deep research on it, mm-hmm. and it gets to your point because like when I when I listen to what who they envision 
is the left, the Democrats, the progressives, is like satanic pedophiles drinking babies' yeah. blood. <laughs> That's cool. <laughs> Way or like alien lizard, and you like you. Awesome. Right. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and I remember like listening to their stories of like who who the left is or who like the the secret cabal in the government is, and and it's funny because like as a reporter, I know reporters who cover you know the high level. Poli- uh, politics right so they know yeah. them they interview them they even know their schedules right and so i talk to them and they're like yeah like i don't know when they have time to drink anyone's blood like their schedule is pretty full <laughs> every day um and, and then i realized i man you know uh my political enemies our political enemies think we're more interesting than we are mm-hmm. like i mean if i was an alien lizard like or anyone was an yeah. alien lizard would be pretty pretty awesome like you'd have a spaceship in the back that oh, transforms it, into like a beetle it would be so much bigger <laughs> than politics yeah it'd be so much bigger but than message boards yeah <laughs> but there is the part where like trump is so anti-abortion but gets a million dollar uh yeah. treatment where that uses uh fetal tissue you know what i mean there's part yeah. of there to there treat is his coronavirus to treat his coronavirus so there are these like lizard-like tendencies that happen mm-hmm. yeah you're like Oh, okay, there's the justice just for the rich, compassion just for the rich, yeah, uh, abortion just for the rich, you know, and and that's yes. that, that's exactly what the society socialism for the rich, yeah. right? Yeah, exactly. I mean, they're paying closer attention to these hedge funds and their and their uh, bank balances than the fucking workers of this country who are fucking frying right now. Yeah. We're more concerned with these guys who are getting fucking who are losing at their own game because of some Redditors were more concerned with their bank balance than, than the, the people out there who are like fucking frankly, uh, like as desperate as it can be in this country. You know, it's cra- when you say that, like it reminds me of, um, there was one friend I had who like, she gave away like, like $3 million. So like, so her dad did some kind of business thing back in the day he got a shitload of money, like like Santa Claus level money, right? Mm. Like I think, yeah, it's crazy. So then he gave it to her, and so she felt really uncomfortable with it. So she started a, an organization to give away her money. She gave, I think she wound up giving three to five million dollars away to like different um, social justice organizations. And this was way way back, back you know almost a decade or more ago. And when I was talking to her about her life in the circles of the wealthy, and this is like Northeast wealthy etc people go to the hamptons etc and she told me story after story of how incredibly unhappy they were mm-hmm. and then that connected to more recently in the kind of psychedelic culture there's a lot of workshops to help people get through you know artistic blocks to get through relationship blocks to get through trauma mm-hmm. and because they cost so much, the wealthy are the ones who can afford it. Yeah. And so they yeah. are telling me stories of wealthy clients, whether they're Hollywood clients, whether they're publishing clients, oil people, like whatever, who have a lot of money to burn and take these like, you know, special like plant medicines. And when they do, um, they, they, they get healed, but they're incredibly unhappy because of the gold, the gilded prison that they live in. Uh, yeah. Right. Right. It, it finally be- it becomes clear to them. Yeah. That they're separate. Yeah. And so it's as if one's wealth, you become so attached to your role as a wealthy person. You become so attached to all the things that you have that you become more attached to the things that you have than you do yourself. Mm-hmm. And so there's this kind of alienation on both ends. And that's the thing that, that strikes me about our particular 
capitalist economy is that it actually creates severe alienation on both ends of the spectrum. Totally. Alienation exactly. of the poor because they're, they're alienated from their dignity, because they can't afford the things that everyone else thinks you need to have, like a medal mm-hmm. on, your, on your chest to say, I'm worthy of being loved, right? Yeah. And so they become increasingly invisible. And then the wealthy have all the things that say, I should be loved. So they become increasingly visible, but not for who they really are. Right. So they become eclipsed by all their, their money. And so you have two people who literally are kind of living in the shadows of either the absence of money or the presence of money. Mm. And that's what happens at the extremes. And so, you know, the more that we produce extremes, the more we're going to produce people who are, are in two different types of prison, the prison of poverty and the prison of wealth. Yeah. Now, of course, people are like, you know, cry me a fucking river for someone who can have their own private island. And that's true. I get it. On a material level, like, they still can eat. They still can... We should think about them, yeah. though, because they're the ones ruling the world. They're the ones deciding how we use our resources and how they get distributed. They're the ones making our laws. We yeah. should think about how what makes them tick. Yeah, because yeah. if they're not happy and, the, and greed seems to be the only thing that makes them happy, I mean, we're all screwed. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and you know, and, and like to your point, it's fucking baked into the American dream that... Uh, that upward momentum where you're going to leave your class. Yeah. So there is no class solidarity because fuck those motherfuckers. What we're all working for is to get out of here. It's, a, it's like being on a triple A baseball team. It's like, yeah, this is fun and everything, but I'm waiting to get called up to the majors any day. And the yeah. chances it's going to happen are fucking slim to none. none. But we also, we all live <laughs> our life like that. That's how they manufacture our consent is because we're all we all think we're fucking billionaires but our day just hasn't come yet. Yeah. And yeah. we we conduct ourselves like that and it creates no class loyalty or sense of anything. Cuz you're like, well no, fuck taxes. Like I don't want to fucking pay taxes. I mean, yeah, I'm going to be a fucking millionaire. Yeah. So, yeah, I want to look out for my best interests here and it's like you're actually voting for your worst interests and you're voting for the people that yeah. have your worst interests in mind to go in there. I mean, Everyone feels so much better. Joe Biden being in the White House has changed nothing. The only thing that lit a fire under his ass was signing executive orders to approve more pipelines, to drop drone bombs on Somalia, Mm. to make sure that he comes out against the $15 minimum wage saying, I don't think we can get it done. Lying about giving us $2,000, just fucking straight lying to the people if you elect these senators in georgia you will get a two thousand dollar check no we meant fourteen hundred dollars and we're going to means test that okay fuck you and fuck you some more you know and uh you know one of the other things that they made sure to do was to make sure that insulin prices couldn't get lowered we need to Mm. fucking make sure that we hold on we just got to make sure business interests are protected and we're going to make sure that these fucking uh, these hedge fund guys are protected from redditors i could tell you that much that will light a fire under their ass all this other stuff it's fucking i don't know it's uh it kills me it kills me because i see uh, a whole swath of people that we could really use their engagement completely disengaged because a democrat's in there and he's got a good heart and it's like no he doesn't we have to hold this motherfucker accountable there is a chance here to change the way america functions and there's a chance to show what our values really are and we're not gonna do it because we don't feel like holding this guy accountable because the last guy was a lot worse so don't say anything which and is this, kind of an abuse of logic right it is. like i was abused by my last lover yeah and so now you know yeah, as long as it doesn't come to that yeah as long as it doesn't, you know, hit yeah no i hear you i've become more interested in the the 1968 uh summer of love with fate ashbury but yeah. researching it yeah 
um, because it was over and over again when I hear when I talk to people elders who were in that space in actually Ian Haight Ashbury or in the Summer of Love nationally that the one ethos that keeps coming up to the surface is we had to do it on our own because the politicians were addicted to war. Yeah. The country was addicted to materialism and there was no way that we could petition them to change direction. Mm -hmm. So we just had to create the world that we wanted to live in instead of waiting for them to create it for us. Yeah. And when they dropped acid mushrooms or when they danced barefoot in mudslides at Woodstock, um, you know, had drum circles, listening to the Grateful Dead, what they were doing was taking psychedelics for one of the first times and using it to actually literally, metaphorically and literally pour acid on the chains of associations that connected them to the large machine. Mm -hmm. yeah. There's this yeah. large machine called America, yeah. and it's chugging along like a Harley Davidson. You know, just spewing out smoke, guzzling gas, and going real fucking fast on the highway. And it's a beautiful beast of a machine, but it kills people. And right? these kids never knew they were part of that machine. And, they were, and then until all they this, took acid. Until they acid. They're like, holy shit. <laughs> yeah. I'm in this, like, Harley Davidson with, like, a skull on top. And I'm it's consenting just like, to this. I'm consenting. And then it's like, it's driving all over the map of the world. And it's just like leaving <sighs> skulls everywhere mm -hmm. it goes, you know? It's skulls in Vietnam, skulls in Cambodia, skulls in the Berlin Wall, you know? Mm -hmm. And so, yeah. And so, so they were like, we have to create the world. And one of the things that they did was a, a world of dematerialism, like taking away materialism. Like just We can just love. Mm -hmm. And it was open, free love, the first attempts at poly love, the first attempts at, you know, mutual, not the first attempts, but like mutual aid, giving food, the diggers, you know? Yeah. And I, and I think about that now. It's like, that's, that's a moment that's becoming more interesting to me, especially now that people need more. Yeah. And yet there, there's so much here all around, so mm. much food, so many things right there. And that spirit of saying we can create the world on our own yeah. and force the larger machine to oh, yeah. either stop or get, you know, uh, sand in its gears. Mm -hmm. You know, almost like throwing flowers in the gears of the machine and you throw so many like roses in it. All of a sudden, like it just stops. Yeah. And like to me, that's the image of a, of a Harley Davidson that's killing people. And you throw so many flowers into its gas tank. It just stops running. Yeah. Right. And it's just like love just stops the machine from running, mm. you know, because like the, the machine doesn't create love. It just creates like a planet you can't live on, people who are dying. And it's just like, no, just throw like love and flowers yeah. at each other. And so that's the thing that needs to happen. But I think there's yeah. a lot of resistance that we have to like, instead of like always trying to become the billionaire with the house on the hill, we had to like switch and actually say, no, I need to empathize with the people on the street. We need to make this better. Yeah. We need like to make this, this better, better for everyone. Yeah. We need to heal each other. Instead of escaping. Everyone's yeah. always escaping. Let's escape. Mm -hmm. Let's keep myself safe. Yeah. And wealth. I'm like, you're never going to go far enough to escape. <laughs> there's not that much room left on the planet. Yeah. But if you were an alien lizard, Oh, and you had the UFO. Yeah. Then you're like, yo, peace, mammals. <laughs> I, I can be out. Yeah. I can be out. You know? Yeah, man. You'd be like, that spaceship gets a lot of miles per gallon, like <laughs> light speed per gallon. You'd be like, yo, this, this is a fucking pretty sweet machine here. You know, you know what um, you even talking about the summer of love stuff makes me think of is because like that was like damn they were on the crest of a dope wave yeah. and it you know it got written off as uh as as revolution and not evolution and 
now's our chance to do it differently. But I think one of the things worth studying for them was how they were cartoonized, otherized, criminalized, infiltrated, um, made uh, made their the lives that they were trying to live yeah. made obsolete, and that generation um, and the, the hippies were made to look a, like a joke. Yeah. And um, what came in their wake was that very same generation accumulating wealth the likes of which this planet had never seen before. Yes. So we yes. were teetering on the coolest fucking thing ever, and they figured out how to fragment it and destroy it yeah. and and water down the messages. And like we were saying, Jesus' message got watered down. Yeah. Martin Luther King's message got, got holy down. shit. Bob Marley's did. Yeah. Fucking John Lennon's did. Like, we, you know, we pick and choose and we whitewash. Malcolm X, yeah. we whitewash these guys. Yeah, towards the end, King was like openly advocating for... Democratic socialism. Yeah. Yeah, and so it's odd. Like, Bernie is actually... It was King, and then after King's death, it was really, I would say, Jesse Jackson, Mm -hmm. who then took up the baton, and he was really advocating for economic... Yeah. uh, For democratic socialism in his 1984 and 1988 uh, Democratic speech, and which is so much more, like, deeper and radical than what Obama said in his Democratic Mm -hmm. Convention speech, but he was the baton, and then the, the person who picked up King and Jesse Jackson's baton of civil rights and democratic socialism was not actually Obama. It was Bernie Sanders. Yep. Bernie Sanders was the one who picked it up. Mm-hmm. And he was the one who said, you know, Medicare for all, college for all. But, you know, he yeah. was always like a consistent. He was the one who took it up. And, and now there'll be another generation. Yeah. But, yeah, you're right. They watered it down. Yeah. Yeah, know? absolutely. And they told King at the time, they're like, just stay with civil rights because you're a Southern preacher and you're more concerned with civil rights. We can give you civil rights because um, having... Black people and Latino people, non-white people drinking at the same water fountain, going to the same restaurants, eating from the same counters. That's not going to disturb capitalism. Yeah, exactly. It'll help it. If it'll anything. help it. If anything. <laughs> yeah, yes. it'll help it. Like more customers, right? <laughs> yeah. But when he was calling towards it at the end for a guaranteed universal income. Yeah. That, and when he did the Poor People's March, uh, he was organizing, I think it was 67, 68, he was organizing the Poor People's March. Um, which was basically going to be a tent city on the mall of Washington, D.C. And then he was shot, and I think it was Ralph Abernathy, who was like his kind of second-in-command, took over the campaign, and then they had literally tents of poor people, like 10,000 poor people, living for weeks um, on the Washington, D.C. mall. Wow. You know, it's like such a contrast. Beautiful idea. Yeah. Let's occupy that shit. That's the thing. Occupy. Occupy Occupy D.C. Yeah. You know? And it was funny because... I, I, someday I have to send you this clip. So Malcolm X was, was constantly kind of just like dogging King and dogging the civil rights movement. And one thing he said, he's like, you know, they didn't organize the March on Washington. He goes, there was just this feeling in every black neighborhood, like we just got to go to D.C. and we're going to sit on the highways so nothing can get through. We're even going to sit on the landing strips of the airports to make sure the planes can't go in and out. And Malcolm, literally, he said, like, people were talking way out their heads, right? And and it was like a very militant shut the city down thing. Mm. And then later, the people got wind of it. And so, like, the the, uh, officials in the government who are sympathetic to civil rights contacted civil rights leaders and said, we heard that there's going to be a march on Washington, but it sounds pretty militant. Like, could you please organize it and chill it out? Right. Mm. And so part of it was how do you kind of make it palatable? How do you make it organized? Yeah. And in some ways it was the event was beautiful and it was historic, but it was not maybe if Malcolm was right, 
it was not necessarily the militant actions that people were planning. So if you're talking about yeah. Occupy DC now yeah. and having like all the people who are recently poor mm-hmm. because of a fucking virus that no one had any fault in yeah, and now where people are sleeping in their cars and dying for lack of healthcare, then Occupy DC. Yeah, and don't make it palatable. And don't make it palatable. You know, and, yeah. and, and be weary, be extremely weary of controlled opposition because because that's mm. that's kind of what aoc Oof. is that's Oof. what bernie is Oof. that's what biden did i'm is. gonna drink to that one yeah yeah Do but be, be weary I'm of good. these people that they put out there as um you know examples of of people fighting for the working class pay attention to what they're actually doing mm. you know aoc just took abolish ice off her website quietly what? What? Quietly. Quietly, yeah. Yeah, you do that kind of stuff quietly. You get a couple good <laughs> tweets <laughs> out. Quietly. You know. But yeah. like what? This is what uh, this is what I'm saying. Like you can't trust these people. Once once they're elected into these places, they're no longer working for you because that system doesn't work for us. That system's there to just uphold itself. So like yeah. Nick is saying, we have to make it obsolete and render it obsolete by by having new systems and new values which we live by. And I think one of the things we have to be very careful of is yeah. is being labeled. Is because the hippies were a label. It was okay. We can infiltrate uh, th- them this way, and then the Black Panthers are this, and we can we can screw them up that way. Yeah. When it's not tied to a label or an ideology or a particular movement and it's just a way we start living and a way we start looking out for each other they can't fuck that up with fbi informants it's too big it's too big it's It's just a way people are living you know it's it's a hard thing they can criminalize all the fucking plants that they want these plants still grow we still have this knowledge we're still going to create a network to get them around to each other yeah it's it's clear that we have to expand beyond like being even threatened by being deplatformed, you know? Yeah. Um, because, you know, the browser owns the most popular video distribution. Yeah. Content, yeah. You know what I mean? Like we got the- demonetized. We got, we, we're nothing. We have 13,000 subscribers and we were demonetized because of what we're talking about. Yeah. And it's not like we're like talking about um, sexual things or, or mm-hmm. anything like that kids would feel inappropriate. It's It's like literally talking about uh, radicalization and fucking LSD and these kind of things and they're just like we want nothing to do with you so we're shadow banned on YouTube like we could barely reach our audience on there yeah and, and there's it, nothing we can do about it. Yeah. it it takes very little for you to be perceived as a threat so it's like how do you operate in a world where anything you do to stand up for yourself could literally put you in behind bars for the rest of your life mm-hmm. so it's it's you want to navigate this territory but i think what sean saying makes so much sense to me because you have to yeah live it if you live it you can't it, you can't be threatened by being not in the institutions that be Yes, 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 yes. I hear you. I hear you. And also maybe just kind of going out. I wonder what it would feel like. I remember back in the day, they used to have like street corner preachers, right? Mm, Yeah. And most of them were crazy. Most of them had like, they were off or they were on something, you know? Um, But every once in a while, if you listen, they would have like, they were like Kanye. Like every, for every like three crazy bullshit things that they said, there was yeah. like one mm-hmm. thing you're like, oh, well, yeah. yeah. You There's know? some gold there. Yeah. <laughs> we're mining for gold. We're mining for gold. Jesus lives. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> and then I was talking to Reverend Billy and Reverend Billy said that that's how he started. He, he actually, he didn't start necessarily as a street corner preacher, but he started as 
Like he he was kind of doing his Reverend Billy performance. I, I think it was like near Wall Street or it was near Times Square, and then eventually he kind of like honed his craft. And I just wonder how powerful it would be to not have our message dependent on social media. Oh, I know. but to actually just go out into the street mm. and have the electric feeling of looking into people's eyes. Yeah, feeling their the muscles on their faces twitch, seeing the the emotional rainbow, mm-hmm. uh, fluctuating colors on their faces. To actually feel the mood of like thousands of people around you, mm. right? Or being in th- around thousands of people looking at someone, you know, and just feeling that energy and not, yeah. you know, and and having that energy of humans, 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 humans an ocean mm. being mm-hmm. what moves the tides inside of your body because the tides outside of your body are also moving. Mm. And I remember feeling this right after 9-11. I remember feeling that the, the, the intense wave of fear, but also hope and frantic panic digging through the rubble for people and looking for people who, who maybe we didn't know if they were alive. I remember that moving so much emotions that have been blocked inside of me. Mm-hmm. So sometimes when you're when you're in a current of human feeling flowing through a river, it actually dislodges some of the oldest stones inside of your soul. Mm-hmm. And I think people forget how healing movements can be. Yeah. You know? Oh, absolutely. Well, I hate to be paranoid, but that's when this this pandemic being designed starts to make sense. Like they want us in our separate apartments where they can control what websites we go to. They can follow what we do. They can make sure the only ways that we're communicating are through their sanctioned communication. Oh, you want your Zoom call to be longer? You have to pay for that. Yeah, yeah. You want to talk to your family a little longer? You know, and I feel you. You know, and it's funny. Like I go, I, I think they wanted that regardless of the pandemic. Yeah, right. I don't think the pandemic was designed. I think they were like, oh fuck, because this is affecting their bottom line. Yeah. And if it affects the rich, it's probably not a conspiracy. That's just my line. Mm-hmm. But I agree with you in the sense that. If you look at everything that's been going on, it's all about atomizing us, keeping us in specific boxes, keeping us in specific, like, you know, tags so you can know, like, what computer accessed what website and what do they say and what do they email and what do they text and what do they WhatsApp and what do they Facebook and everything's recorded and everything Mm -hmm. has like a link and you can follow it. But if you're out into the street and you're just meeting people and it's just words and feelings and eye motion and body language, you can't. Oh, totally. But, you know, my, my dad is kind of an embodiment of this because he's like, you know, he can't help himself. He's not connected. He's not on any social media or anything. He doesn't really text anybody or anything. He's old school. He goes to the, you know, I dropped my clothes off at the dry cleaner. You wouldn't <laughs> believe who I met. You know, I met this guy, you know, yeah. 55 years old. And he gets whole people's whole stories, this and that. And he preaches the good word. And it's not about politics, this or yeah. that. It's... It's about loving and taking care of each other and just the act of listening. It's helping us evolve. It's helping us hear each other's needs a little bit better so those needs can be met because, uh, man, we're in a fucked up fucking situation. I love that, I love that phrase, the good word. Yeah, the good mm-hmm. word. The good word. Yeah, man. Just pass the good word along. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's all. That's all. You know what it's like. You know the bad word. Yeah. <laughs> we already know. There's so many of them. But yeah. the good word. The good word's love. Yeah. yeah. We're all here for each other, man. Yeah. You know? Yeah, exactly. You know? Just holding space in that and just um, being that kind of person and really embodying that. It's hard to do. My dad has fucking abused drugs his whole life. You know, mm. it's really hard to do. But when he's in that purity and in that innocence and in that heart space, 
it fucking cuts through. It's crazy. It doesn't matter what people's disagreements, political leanings yeah. are, this or that. You can see it, and I've seen it with this man in particular, like watching his way of navigating the, the world because that's how he's had to navigate the world. Yeah. You know? I can see that. I can see yeah. that. You know, and uh, when I think about how we look at people, when I think about the homeless lady who I, who I interviewed and um, how her and her husband use heroin, and she showed me the track marks on her arm. And I think about what, what two people, Carl Hart and Jonathan Hari. Jonathan Hari had a book called... Johan. Johan, yeah, yeah. Had lost connections. And talked about how um, uh, that depression was oftentimes social, right? It was, it was socially produced. If people are isolated away from each other, mm-hmm. that it's socially produced. And that Carl Hart's main thesis is that addiction is also socially produced. In yeah. other words, it's not actually always the chemicals that get you addicted. So it's not like if you do heroin or crack or coke, you're not going to be turned into, or meth, you're not going to turn into like this raving beast. It's actually the opposite. It's actually the opposite. In fact, and I knew this because I have a really, really good friend who did heroin for six months and then stopped. Yeah. And that's it. Yeah. He just stopped. And so one of the points that he made is that it's poverty and trauma that create addiction. It's not actually the chemicals themselves. Mm-hmm. And when I put his work with Johan Hari's uh, Lost Connections, the main, the one thing that stands out is that one of the reasons people get addicted, and I think about what your father went through and, and what the homeless woman who I um, um, talked to went through, is I think that when you're isolated from people, drugs become a way of replacing the missing love in your life. Yeah. yeah. The drugs are, in a sense, like when you're injecting heroin or snorting coke or smoking crack, it's as if you're inhaling, injecting missing people. Yeah. Like, because I think about how I feel when I, when I'm, when I hug someone, who I love, when I, when I touch someone, when I give someone a kiss, who I love, and whether it's my son, whether it's my lover, and I, my whole body is like a, like just yeah. a, a beautiful fire, that just in, kind of engulfs me, and I just feel this beautific rainbow glow emanating from me and I feel so calm mm. and the ocean inside of me is just at peace mm. and I feel that everywhere that they touched it's like a little like little sliver of sunrise mm. and I just feel like my body's just covered with like sunrise marks and and then when my son sleeps on my chest I could literally feel our hearts just beating and talking to each other and it, it almost feels like our hearts are like orbiting each other and he's like a young little planet and I'm an older planet and we're just orbiting each other and I can feel our vegetation like giving, shooting each other pollen. Mm. And I love him. And I could just, I, and I could skin to skin. And I think that when people miss that, when they, they don't have physical touch in their life, when they don't have love and kisses and touches in their life and, and listening, eye listening, yeah. mm. then they're like, I need to replace it. And the drugs oftentimes excite the part of your brain where people should be. Oh, and absolutely. so to me, I'm thinking, again, this is not like every single case, but I think so many of the cases that we talk about addiction, it's something that people are missing. Oh, yeah. And they're my, missing I, other people. My dad never got unconditional love. And, you know, the, these drugs can replace that feeling usually just the first couple times. But there is a condition with the drugs is that you got to keep going back. Yeah. And um, yep. I heard Kim Deal of the band The Breeders and the Pixies say, you know, when it comes to drugs, it's like you, you keep you keep going back, but you can only open the doors of perception once. There's really only opening the doors of perception yeah. once. So the rest is a fool's errand. The rest is kind of chasing that original high that you can never get back to. That you know that thing that did fill 
fill the void for a second. Yeah. But now you've created another void. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Or and, it gets and, bigger. And it get no the yes. The, yeah, it starts to open up this fucking vortex. Yeah. Which you can quickly start spiraling into. I've seen it firsthand with my dad. I've you know, I've struggled with my own shit, but um. Yeah. yeah, it's it's really it's really incredible because I think that it does tie back into our politics in the sense of that when we, we Johan Hari and Dr. Carl Hart are thought of as fringe people right now uh, because we can't acknowledge the reality of what they're saying, even though it's very obvious, because it would take us having to make some systemic changes that would cause us to have to look at the rich and the inequality in this world and do something about it. So there's so many systems working against these messages getting out there and us even seeing the forest through the woods. There's so many things trying to deter us from that. But what these guys are saying makes a lot of sense. And these things are environmental responses and this kind of desperation that like, look, look what our country's doing to tens of millions of people right now. We're some of them. This kind of desperation leads to drug abuse. It yeah. leads to more yeah. desperation. It leads to you being consumed and uh, having to rely on, on the system and having to borrow money. And just you, you become a fucking joke and you become a puppet. And that's, that's kind of like what we're trying to fight against. And that's what we're trying to wake people up to is like if we fight... And if we start treating each other these ways and we, if we start embodying these values and showing people what, the, what those kind of lives look like, there's a chance it could spread like wildfire. Yeah. But people have to start living it. We can't just talk about it. That's the thing. You yeah. really do yes. have to live it. Yeah. And, um, yes. You know, stuff, stuff we could talk about more. If Maybe uh, he could do our after show and we could talk about polyamory. And oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Ties, yeah, ties no, polyamory <laughs> is a motherfucker, bro. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, right? Like, like it's, yeah. it's work. It's like you're... It's work, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but it also shows you the reality of the, of the human heart. You yes. know, like I've never just loved one person in my life. Mm-hmm. I've, I've loved my mom. And I love my son. I love my partner. You know, I love my co-parent. You know, I love you. Mm. I love people in all different types of frequencies. You know, it's mm-hmm. not it doesn't have to be the same. And it's like my my heart has never felt depleted because I loved more than one person. It actually in, in some ways has felt richer, like really rich soil that's getting more enriched with mm-hmm. like rare minerals. Yeah. I've always felt a deepening of myself um and acknowledging it is also acknowledging the flow that connects to what you said about the difference between talking and living mm. and that's something that really struck me with um when i was teaching siddhartha and there was the image of the river and and siddhartha's journey in, in the book siddhartha by herman hesse it came out like 1922 that the the protagonist he didn't find enlightenment in the holy text he needed to find it in his body and one of the most important um characters that actually taught him was not the buddha but it was actually a courtesan and the courtesan she through her erotic arts actually taught him how to give and to receive through love making oh shit and when she taught him that kamala was her name when she taught him that and she also bore his son later and then his son who he loved very much um but was was basically a pampered kid and couldn't stay with siddhartha because he was living like a hermit life fled from Siddhartha's hermit life and Siddhartha had to let go of his own son. Mm-hmm. And so all of that is that he had to learn attachment and detachment in his body. And it was about his body language, tone of voice, eye talk, 
mm. smell, everything. The, the whole the body was 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 where it was at, yeah. not the ideas. And that to me is where it connects with yours. It's a difference between talking and living, yeah. and actually turning like every touch. Everything you look at, everything you smell, how you interact with people the physically, that's where it's at. Yeah. That's where the Holy Scripture is at. That's more powerful than Marxist capital. Mm. That's the good word. The good word is in your fingertips. It's yeah. in your toes. It's mm -hmm. in your chest. It's it's not in the... Because think about every time we talk, the words become sound and the sound and the breath disappear into the air. Mm. But when you touch someone, the memory of your body being touched lasts a lot longer. We talk a lot. And the clouds in the sky keep going. But when you touch someone, it feels like you become part of a tree's roots. You feel touched. You feel connected. Mm. And I think that's where the scripture, that's where the good word is at. And that's the, what undercuts left-wing, right-wing, oh, yeah. fascist, revolutionary, progressive. It's Religion. Like, yeah. It's like if you say love is more powerful, then love tears through all of that. Mm-hmm. It burns through all of that, mm -hmm. you know, and all of those illusions wind up just becoming like ash and the ash becomes really enriching things for the soil, but it burns away, you know, mm -hmm. and that's what I'm feeling. Like, that's where the truth is at. And mm -hmm. I know that because I, and that's, I would say actually not just Polly, because everyone that's like, oh, Polly's about the sex. It's not. Polly's more about how to pour your, your, your living cup of love into other people and have them pouring it into you and feeling what is the natural arc. And I think Polly, but then more importantly, to be honest, Polly taught me how important my son's love is. Mm -hmm. And when I feel him sleeping on my chest or talking and smiling to me, I'm like, oh, he's actually teaching me what love is. And because he's still like right before language, he's going to get into language now. But I have to talk to him in hugs and kisses and tones of voice. Mm -hmm. I'm like, oh, but that's really what we all need to talk to each other as. Yeah. Right. Oh, well, and, and what we've allowed... Um, these systems to to fragment the way our love is expressed up into yeah. and there's only certain days to do it and certain ways to do it yeah. and the best way to do it is with a material object yeah. and just all these ways of like uh, just just fucking us up fucking up our flow and uh, you know we're a species that want to dance together we yeah. want to fucking dance together we want to show our love we want to attract more love we, yeah you know i've been telling burning man like when i talk to the burning man organization because like sometimes they ask me for consulting advice and i said you know um i i remember i was, I was telling a consultant um because they were like, asking for some advice and i and i said i just taught a semester on, on the literature of the plague i taught stephen king's the stand and stephen king's an amazing writer he's totally overlooked um, I taught Albert Camus' La Peste, The Plague, and I taught Daniel Defoe's um, uh, Diary of a Plague from 1665 in London, Ooh. right? So it's like cool. we had like actual like a diary of a plague, fiction and fiction, right? And then there was a great plague in, in Athens as well. And at the end of every plague, there's always one thing that happens, a great celebration, yeah. Shit. And literally kissing. It's like everyone's getting married to everyone in the street. Yeah. Wow. There's a great, like, just joyful, orgiastic festival that happens. And I was telling them, I was like, yo, look, don't fuck this up. I was like, I told the burn, it's not about that. I, I love Burning Man. I love going out to the desert, but it's larger than that now. Now it's like there has to be burns in every place, in every park, mm. in every major city. Get the burners to organize small mini burns and invite people and say look this is the culture now spread it spread it 
be like revolutionary pollen. Like all those, yeah. you know, charred cinders that fly away from the burn. Those are like revolutionary pollen. Mm. And let them blow into Central Park. Let them blow into Baltimore and Detroit and to yeah. L.A. and Sacramento and San Francisco yeah. and Ohio and Imagine Nebraska. Imagine New York City burn that lasted 10 days. 10 days, yeah. You know, and we're, we're taking over all these buildings, buildings and parks yes. and, like, there's people everywhere. Yes. It's like, you wouldn't believe what they're doing in McCarran yes. today. Yeah. You know? Mm-hmm. And it's all, incredible. like, and the thing is, like, it taps into, like, the best value so that people have a hard time like really just like you it's you can't stop it everyone's on that vibe mm-hmm. you know everyone's on the vibe like you know finally like you have people who are like the diggers of the 68 summer of love where they're giving food to the poor and making sure that women are protected and making sure that people have housing like you know like you've got and then like but bring that now bring that now bring the burn now bring yeah. the burn now it's like it can't just be about the thing in the desert mm-hmm. you know the desert was like a an empty canvas that you can doodle on but now you got to bring it to the parks. Well, th- it's what I'm saying about the we they we've set up and allowed them to set up just these containers for mm-hmm. our expression of love. Like, hey, yeah, you can yeah. be a freak who takes care of each other and doesn't use money, but for those ten days in the desert, exactly, you'll behave yourself. Yeah, right? behave yourself. For yeah. every other day of the year, you'll get back to normal. Right? Okay, cool. You will. You're going to use money. Great. Cool. Great. Yeah. But if everyone decide, every, if everyone that went there was like. Yo, we're living like this no matter what. It's going to be a herky-jerky ride at first. But yeah. We're going to all be in <laughs> it's touch. It's going to be crazy. We're going to figure out how to do it. Yeah. We're going to communicate with each other as to how to live this way in the current society. And we're going to help it spread like fucking wildfire. Yeah. You know, that like it, it's honestly where we need to take this. We need to like we need to take Valentine's Day. We need to take the love, the concentration of love and acceptance that this is Valentine's yeah. Day and make that every fucking day. Yeah. Valentine's Day should be actually like a goddamn revolutionary day. Yeah. It's not just about love but just with your monogamous partner. It should be a love with your poly partner. It should be love with your child. Your heart. Your heart. Your How parents. do you feel about these motherfuckers? You got yeah. love for these motherfuckers. That should be Valentine's Day should be the day that you sit there with a picture of the person that triggers you the most yes and you're just like fuck i love you have to you. do it you i love to, you you have to do a bad <laughs> ritual with them you know like that kind of shit yeah like we can have more fun we can definitely as this current system comes apart as at its seams and it's going to have a lot of victims yeah there can be those of us who are not taking this life that seriously so we can decorate maybe how the future could look and oh my god offer some ideas when you say that i just think of like Karl marx but like a chippendale abs body with like a g-string and like that's me yeah and just like it just like gyrating to the people hell yeah <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that's me. Dude, yeah, it is you. I would like totally put money into your J-string right there. Like, <laughs> fucking great abs. I could wash my shirt on those abs, man. I know, dude. Washboard abs. <laughs> Washboard abs. I, I opened up the door and, and Nick was like, dude, you're looking sexy. And you are. Like, I'm having a you're great day, so man. so sexy, bro. This is great. This you're is looking great. You're like Burt Reynolds on like that fur bear carpet. <laughs> totally. <laughs> yeah. yeah. He's a new type of sex icon. Yes. <laughs> yes. Totally new. Yeah. Definitely. Psychedelic cowboy. You know, yes. Just doing my thing. Yeah. Psychedelic chic. <laughs> oh, that is so fucking sexy. <laughs> Everyone, please watch this with candlelight. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Will you, um, do, do you have a little bit more time? Mm-hmm. I'm gonna, we're going to end this episode and yeah. we do a little after show for our Patreon. 
Yeah, let's do it, bro. Um, yeah, where we can, it, it's to less people. It's to the people that just pay, they could pay whatever and get on there and they get access to that and our radio show and our Discord community. Let's give it, let's give it to them. But we'll give them, yeah, we give them let's a little, give them a little extra. the afterglow little is so goods. fun. Yeah. We, we definitely get more juicy in there, but this was yeah. a goddamn pleasure. You're our favorite and most often had guest. Yeah. Oh. And by far. by far, you blow everyone else away. And, uh, Let's let's. Here's some more of it. Thank you for bringing us wine and getting yeah, me drunk off five cheers. sips. Cheers. Thank you for being really really good friends. And oh. I think the one thing that I want is that at some point I want y'all to meet my son. Yeah, yeah I mean we want that yeah. too. Yeah, he's we need a to meet this guy. Yeah, he's a good kid. Viva la revolution. Viva la revolution. <laughs> Viva la revolution. <laughs>